This episode was recorded via correspondence and may have some sound quality discrepancies. We hope you enjoy the content and look forward to bringing you more. I was getting into the ocean on an extremely choppy, huge wavy day and swimming against the current. It felt like I was constantly battling another wave and another wave and feeling myself kind of get more and more fatigued. Hello and welcome to our listeners to episode one of Brain to Bar, where we sit down with some of our industry bosses as they share their first-hand experiences applying mindset and brain strategies to bring themselves to the bar, whether it's in life, health or business. My name is Sophia and I will be your captain as we cruise around the high seas with our special guests. Now today, I am incredibly excited to introduce you to our milestone guest for our premiere episode. I would describe her as the ultimate personification of mental strength. She has not only built a successful brand and business, she travels around sharing her personal story to give others the opportunity to discover how powerful the human brain really is. She is unapologetically raw and real. Please welcome CEO and founder of Authentic, Flick Manning. Woo! Wow, what an intro. Thank you so, so much, first of all, for, for even having me on and for asking me. It's genuinely a real honour. I'm so humbled to be your first guest. But also um, for the beautiful words that you just said, like quite literally have watery oh. eyes now. So I'm just going to be blinking and slightly blinded over here with happiness. Oh, Thank you for so that. You're so welcome. And like, luckily we're not on video, so you can blink away. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for coming on to Brain to Bar. We're really excited to hear your story and your experience. So Flick, tell us a little bit about your background and your backstory for those of us listening at home. Absolutely. Um, so my backstory it's sort of been a long winding road. It's definitely not what I would call a linear path by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I have a little bit of a complex story and you know, to some extent we all do, but my story started out really as uh, you know, being a kid coming into my teen years and uh, recognising that there was something going on with my physical health that was, was really unsettling. I was in a lot of uh, pain and discomfort and it was continuing to get worse. And as I came into my teen years, after a lot of really traumatic um, issues with the medical industry and a lot of misdiagnosis, uh, we eventually were able to work out that I have Crohn's disease and irritable bowel syndrome at the same time. So these are two conditions that affect the digestive system, but in different ways, one of which is sort of classified as autoimmune or immune compromised, which is Crohn's disease. And uh, with that, I had all of the fun extra intestinal issues with pain and cognitive issues and mental health problems and sort of came out of that sort of period of my life or into my sort of mid-teens with a whole bucket load of physical, uh, mental and emotional problems, you know, PTSD, OCD, depression, anxiety, insomnia, as well as the pain and, and having an incurable, invisible disease and, and living with a very stigmatised condition that no one really wants to talk about because it involves poop. And um, people generally don't like <laughs> to have, you know, casual conversations about that. So it became a really, really trying and ultimately a really important period in my life, uh, not just because of what I was facing then, but because what I had 
wanted to do with my life was dance. I wanted to be able to use my body. It was something that brought me great joy and became really my lifeline to to kind of help me stay in the world uh, with all of these challenges. And I was told I wouldn't be able to do it. And uh, I really had to embark on this very long winding sort of journey defiantly really with the whole aim initially being just to work out how I could stay well enough to actually do the thing that I thought that I was born to do and uh, that path took me through so many learnings so many ups and downs and challenges and ultimately redirected me and I fell madly and deeply in love with the human body and the human brain in particular I did a lot of study around that and that led me to the wellness industry and really realizing that if I could actually make a living as a dancer and and actually build a business and do all of these crazy things with an incurable condition, with pain, with cognitive and mental health issues, um, through using what I had discovered uh, about wellness and about the brain, then really anybody could. And I'm now incredibly uh, passionately out in the world sharing my story in the hope that it doesn't just help other people like myself who who do get relegated to the sidelines of society so often but for even people that are generally very well to realize they have untapped potential at all times and that there is a beauty in the human experience that you actually get to choose whether or not you tap into your full potential that is beautiful oh wow your story just sounds so incredible in what you've had to deal with can you describe for us a moment or a phase of your life where you realized I need to change the way I think in order to progress with what I want to do oh absolutely look there's been many many times along the way where I recognize that what's going on up inside my mind and my brain is is a huge factor and uh, I think probably one of the more poignant times was when I was in my very early 20s and I had already successfully worked out how to still be a dancer, a dance teacher, choreographer and all those kinds of things, but I was really, really struggling to maintain it because I was having to push through physical pain and I was working when I really shouldn't always be working and uh, I really had a chip on my shoulder um, because I had a stigmatized condition that I felt like I couldn't talk about. I wasn't sharing with anybody, particularly not in the dance industry, that this is what I was going through. I was very, very worried about being sort of discovered, which is something that can go along with having an invisible illness. It's, it's a toxic situation to be in. And as a result of that, I was kind of asking my body to constantly do things that it really, really couldn't do. And my mindset around that was so incredibly warped and layered. I had this as I said, I had a real big chip on my shoulder. I I really had a, a woe is me kind of hat on that I wore a lot of the time, very negative. And I really self-blamed when I wasn't able to keep up with, you know, my other colleagues who, who seemed to be able to kind of handle uh, the physical and emotional pressures of a job like being a full-time dancer. And I was really struggling to actually do that. So Rather than treating myself kindly, what I sort of found myself doing ultimately was actually making my situation significantly worse. I was kind of wearing this whole, you know, show up anyway, do your job, the show must go on kind of mentality, which certainly can come from being in the entertainment industry. I was wearing it as a badge of honour, like as if working through pain made me some kind of superhuman hero or 
like as if I should, that's the way that I should function. Um, and at the same time, I was really comparing myself to everybody else around me and asking my body to do all those things it couldn't do. I created this really insane hour of power. And that's what I called it, my hour of power. So I was already, you know, probably dancing and, and teaching four to eight hours a day. And then I would throw this hour of power in, in amongst it, which was sort of meant to be about physical maintenance for my body, like an insurance policy for myself, trying to do what I could to, to help myself stay in the game. But instead of treating myself with kindness or addressing my mental health at that time, I was asking myself to run eight kilometers and then do, you know, a couple of hundred sit-ups and do wow. all these different things within an hour, like really thrashing myself and had this sort of idea in my head that if I could get through this hour of power, then I could somehow prove to myself that I wasn't weak, I wasn't vulnerable, um, that this condition that I had didn't make me less than and that somehow I was tougher than everybody else. So it was, there was so many layers of negative thinking and thought patterns around that. And I ultimately had to sort of come to the conclusion quite quickly, really, after starting that hour of power that it was a hindrance to me. And I really had to take some deep learnings from that situation and recognize that uh, I was in a way by doing what my head was telling me at the time, which was, you know, to be tough and do all this self-protection. I was actually sabotaging myself. I was making it so much harder for me to bring myself to the bar. You know, I was, I was setting the, the fence up so high and then asking myself to climb over the top of it. And I became even more physically ill and my mental health was plummeting alongside that. Um, and so I really, yeah, at that point had to address that if I was going to stay as a dancer, if I really wanted to pursue that, then clearly what I was doing was no longer cutting it. I needed to change something. And I recognised that it was what was going on in my head that desperately had to change. What kind of strategies and methods did you try to change your mindset um, in order to then progress? So, you know, initially it sort of happened in a very roundabout way. I recognised that there was obviously stuff going on in my mind that was not serving me. It was not nourishing I knew, I knew instinctively, of course, that it was not right for me to be constantly comparing myself and trying to adjust my behaviour based on somebody else's, particularly when their body was absolutely not designed like mine was. Uh, but I initially approached it very haphazardly. I kept trying things randomly but without any sort of consistency at the beginning. So I was picking up what I now know to be self-care methods. I was trying to apply self-care to my life in order to really understand how I function physically and mentally and emotionally and really be able to observe myself from a bird's eye view. But I was doing it very hit and miss. So there was no way of me really telling what was going on. And I sort of just eventually got really, really sick of the up and down nature of trying something once and then being disappointed that it didn't work and then leaving it a couple of and trying again with something else and just sort of committed to recognizing that the first point of call had to be learning to accept and understand that I was different to the average person, that that did not make me weak or less than, but it just simply meant that I was different and I had to approach myself differently. So I needed to really get into a thinking pattern of tracking. So basically I started to look at my physical, mental and emotional reactions 
in terms of how I thought, how I felt and how I behaved to everything from food to different types of exercise to the types of you know music and things that I was consuming, the people that I was hanging around. And I really committed to paying attention to all of that and objectively looking at how I behaved and thought. And very quickly within the space of two or three weeks of doing that, I was able to see some very clear underlying threads of behavioral thinking, thought, emotional patterns that I had never realized until that point existed. And it was from there that I was able to start seeing that there were triggers and that I could start to make very small tweaks to my life systematically to get me outside of that pattern of thinking, which I had clearly been reinforcing for, you know, majority of, of my life. So you mentioned that it was about two weeks of um, pretty much experimenting trial and error. Did you record this in like a journal um, and then kind of compare the results? Um, I've always found that to be like a really beneficial way of tracking everything. And so I was really writing things down and without consciously knowing it at the time too, I think if I really look back, there has always been a cognitive issue that has come with having Crohn's disease. It's something that's really only starting to be spoken about now, but we can run at about 10% Um, behind everybody else's brain capacity in terms of the ability to uh, cognitively make decisions, to move things from short to long-term memory and stuff like that. So I had always found that by writing things down, I was able to remember them and understand them better. So I just automatically had tapped into that without even really understanding the, the scientific significance of that. Um, and was, you know, literally going, you know, morning and then writing down what I'd eaten, how I felt, what my sleep was like, who I'd spoken to, what kind of activities I did. And I did that sort of breakfast, lunch, dinner every day um, for several weeks. And then on reviewing that, it became super clear that there were a number of things that I was doing without even realising it and that there were definitely things that I could change. Wow. So were there certain points from the beginning where you started Uh, collating all this information to applying different tactics to manipulate these variables. At what points in this process did you start to realise that behaviours were kind of habitual? Did it take you, you know, a month, six months, a year to actually realise that some of these newly formed habits were happening automatically? I think I started to recognise that almost immediately. So probably when I say immediately on the first review and look at patterns. So it was probably two to three weeks into the process that I was able to recognise that there were there were the patterns of behaviour that were coming through consistently. Um, it took me a little bit longer that, than that to recognise that the thought patterns or the behaviour were coming from um, emotions and from other types of triggers outside of that behaviour, it's not working for me, therefore I should stop doing that behaviour. Um, it took me probably at least another six months, if not close to 12 months, to recognise that um, fighting the behaviour alone is kind of just adding more fuel to the fire and I needed to go another layer deeper and actually have a look at what the emotion is and where the the actual thought pattern triggers are coming from. And that's really, I think, what got me into thinking more about the brain itself because I just started thinking, well, there's so much more to it and I've never been taught about my brain. No one has ever had a conversation with me about understanding how my brain works or understanding how thoughts are even created or where emotions are triggered from. And, um, and 
that really piqued my curiosity. And I figured if I could make all these other tweaks, which I was starting to make to my physical health, all these little adjustments, then surely I could be able to do that for my brain. And therefore the result of that would be, I would change my thinking, which would change my behavior. I love that. That's really, that's, it's a pretty advanced uh, move to go from, I'm trying to change habits to actually, you know what, the root cause of this is my control center, my brain. Um, and I'm, yeah, so excited that you've gone off and um, you've actually studied um, the function of the brain. You are mm -hmm. a neuroplastician, I believe. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Can you talk to us just a little bit about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So neuroplasticity is essentially the plasticity of your brain or kind of in more uh, layman's terms, it's the, the phenomena around the brain, how the brain learns, how the brain thinks and its ability to actually rewire itself or to change itself. So for a very, very long time, the thinking was that once you got to a particular age in adulthood, the way that you thought was finite, it was stuck. You'd already learnt it, that's just how it was. And that over, over time, that brain capacity would sort of decline. Um, we now know from all of the science that, that has been studied that that's actually not the case, uh, that your thinking can be rewired, that there are so many ways that we can actually get in and, and change our wiring. And in fact, ways for us to allow non-serving thought patterns to actually drop away from the brain when they're not being reinforced. Worth noting, though, of course, that when we come to something like trauma, it does affect the brain differently to a normal type of learning. So what I've learned along the way, uh, because I have experienced sort of trauma multiple times through this process, is that I may not always be able to remove the trauma, but I can certainly remove the way that I react to the trauma. So, uh, you know, if you don't have trauma, then you can certainly get in and just start changing things around systematically. If you do have trauma, you may be changing things in two different ways at the same time. Did you experience in your time any kind of relapse into old thinking patterns as you were going through this journey of change? Oh, yes, most definitely. Many, many times. And I think it's something that uh, we probably don't talk about enough. I think one of the things that I come across a lot now in my work is that when people think about their behaviour, their thinking, or even, you know, particular um, activities that they do might need to change to better their situation, there's an inherent feeling that you're less than or you're weak or you're broken or that there's something wrong. And, and inherent even to that is this idea that we will change once perfectly and finitely for good that there will once you've got to this final form somehow that's it then you've never got to do any work again but what I've obviously learned along the way is that that's not the case at all when we learn something particularly something that is uh, you know maybe not serving us quite often you can track it back to either a traumatic event or something that maybe has happened in childhood that has not set you up particularly well for your adulthood and when we have a look at at those sort of particular ideas or ways of thinking, um, we need to sort of realise that there are going to be many, many triggers to bring up that same thought pattern that is not serving you. So it's not just one trigger. Effectively, our brain sort of does uh, what I like to call a bird's eye view snapshot. So when we learn something, particularly when there's 
all the hemispheres of the brain are online. You've got, for example, your, your eyes are functioning. You've got your auditory system. Everything is switched on at the same time. You've got all of these branch-like networks of messages going through the brain, connecting everything together. And that snapshot has effectively taken into account everything that is happening in real time that your brain will not communicate with you that it is actually absorbed. So your brain is sort of making priority calls on your behalf all the time. It's only going to tell you the most, what it considers to be the most essential piece of information at any given time. But in learning anything, it's taken into account, for example, the temperature of the room, what clothes you were wearing, if you were standing in a particular type of environment, was it night or day? There's all these different types of sort of associated learning triggers that are being taken into account. And so when we have a look at a behavior pattern or a thought that is not serving us, quite often people will find that they think they've addressed everything about that thought pattern because it's, you know, they seem to be going along well and then they'll have a relapse. And that relapse can be caused by the fact that there were multiple other triggers that they were not aware of that trigger that old thought pattern. And so they find themselves repeating that behavior. So it's a complex system in the sense that we sometimes really have to allow ourselves to number one, recognize you haven't failed. There's nothing wrong. You are not broken if you've got something to address in the first place, because that does change the way that, that you're going to approach this. Secondly, to recognize that there is no end game. You will never be at a point where there is nothing left to learn, change or tweak. The beauty of the human experience is that you are always going to be evolving and changing. That's what's so privileged about being this species. So try to embrace that as much as you can. And thirdly, understanding that every thought pattern, particularly those ones that are traumatic or not self-serving in a particular way, will likely have hundreds of triggers and so along the way, even five years down the track, you might find yourself relapsing on a particular thought pattern or behavior because there was a trigger you just weren't aware of. And that's not something that you should blame yourself for or to allow it to off-put you from continuing on the path of evolving learning. It simply means that there is more to learn. And again, I, I always try to come back to this. It is a privilege to be in a species where we actually have the option to do that, to actually be able to go at any point in our life and go, this is not working for me. What have I missed how do I make it better for myself? So if we can embrace all of those things around learning and really let go of this weird perceived notion we all have that we have to be adults and perfect immediately, then you can actually change a lot, um, but you will be changing forever. And that's kind of the blessing. 100%. I love that you'll be changing forever. And it's absolutely true. This actually reminded me of um, something that I've realized recently is a trigger that I never expected. So I've been doing some of my own behavioral change as well. Exactly what you were describing is trying to understand that there are multiple triggers to a response and usually it's an emotional response. And I'll give you an example that I literally just discovered probably in the last fortnight, which is very strange. I am a huge movie buff. I love movies, but I've never cried in any movie like not even the notebook, not even like, I just don't cry. One movie that makes me cry every single time since I was 14 years old when I first watched it. And you will not expect the movie that I'm going to share with you mm -hmm. right now. I'm being very open and vulnerable. So everyone be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie that made me cry was The Butterfly Effect with Ashton Kutcher. Wow. And it's not something that you know, most people will cry about. 
But let me just give you a quick synopsis of this and then you'll understand and, uh, and then match my behavior. So you might be able to connect that this movie is a subconscious trigger for me. The movie is about an individual who kind of has these journals and when he reads his past um, journal entries, he actually can go back in time to that specific moment. And what he does is then he tries to fix the problems to then make his future a better one. And the whole movie is about him trying to fix the people in his life by changing the situation. But what occurs is that, you know, that butterfly effect, changing one thing then influences the reactions in the future. And he realises at the end that whatever he does just makes the timelines worse. So he actually goes back to the point where he was in the womb and actually stops himself from being born. That scene in the movie, sorry, spoiler alert, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> That scene in the movie makes me cry every single time. And I only just discovered that it is deeply connected to a behaviour that I have that has developed over time through environmental, because um, I nurture, that mm -hmm. my need to solve everyone's problems is something that has come up recently through my self-exploration and it's actually causing mental health considerations for me. And when I actually started linking all this together, it just, it just explained why this movie made me cry every single time. I didn't realise it at the time. I just thought it was very moving. And it wasn't until I actually explored the reasons that I react and other triggers that I made this connection. How weird is that? That's amazing. I mean, number one, kudos to you for actually taking the time to be in observation of yourself. I think if we all did that more, we would probably be just healthier in general as people. Um, so that's awesome that you did that. And secondly, I can fully understand how you got from um, that movie and why that sort of reflects your own, you know, thinking or need to sort of be in control or to help and to step in and solve problems and things like that. I mean, it makes absolute total sense. But again, you probably wouldn't have noticed it before had you not sort of had the impetus to sit down and go, what is going on? Why does this have an effect on me? Like, where does this all link? And isn't it amazing that you've got something from kind of the age of 13 or 14 that is still a trigger for you? Um, and your body and your brain were probably trying to communicate that to you then through crying. It's just that you didn't understand the language of your body and brain to be able to interpret it correctly. Exactly right. It was just, it was a big moment for me. I think I just cried then and there because everything, all the pennies just started to drop for certain situations. So it's a really, it's a really huge kind of revelation for yourself if you are able to apply those mechanics and actually step outside yourself and watch yourself from a um, what you call the bird's eye perspective. Mm. But having said that, we know that mindset and mental health are two separate concepts, but they do influence each other. Yes. So I was wondering, given your entire experience and having to explore yourself and manage certain behaviours, of course, mental health concerns will come up. You did mention previously that you had a lot of battles with mental health how has your process impacted or influenced your mental health or vice versa? That's a great question. You know, there's been points where I could quite easily say that 
that my mental health has affected my behavior, but also my behavior has affected my mental health. So I definitely see, for me, certainly, I believe that the, your mental, your physical and your emotional self are completely connected. They can't, can't actually be separated from one another because we're not designed to be separate. And we can see that through the reality that we are designed to cry and produce tears and all these sorts of things. There's so much linking between all of our systems. And so when we are addressing one area, we are always going to ultimately see effects in the other areas, even if it's unintentional. Um, so for me, when it comes to kind of the mental health side of things, for sure, I, I saw a really, really big effect uh, multiple times in my journey where my mental health has become more challenging, uh, particularly with the kind of uh, obsessive compulsive part of it as well. That's that's an area that can be very easily triggered by anything going on in my life that's causing me anxiety or if my, my physical health takes a bit of a dip, that's something that can spark up very easily. Um, and over the years, I have gotten to know my triggers and I'm very, very aware of my behavior. So I don't allow myself to actually um, do the compulsions. Once you sort of start compulsing, you're really like going down a rabbit hole there that it's hard to pull yourself out of very easily. So I have a lot of control over that. But I have noticed in that that sometimes that obsessiveness, which is part of sort of my wiring in, inherent in having obsessive compulsive disorder, that I can take it too far in applying um, even wellness behaviours to my own life. There's a point where I have to draw a line and actually say, right, you've realistically done as much as you can actually do. And any more than that now is you simply accessing the obsessive part of your brain, that aspect of your mental health. And I actually, if I allow myself to go down that rabbit hole too much, I actually unwind all of the good work that I have done. So it, it's a very, very fine line between the two. So I have to be very glaringly aware of the connection between mental health and behaviour. But also on the other way, if you look at it more from a, a, a more positive lens as well, there have been times where, many times along this road, where I've adjusted my behaviour. So, for example, uh, bringing in things like a non-negotiable policy to my wellness. I will not give it up. I will not move it. I will not deprioritize it for anybody or anything. By putting that in place and ensuring that I'm doing something for my physical self, my mental self, my emotional self on a daily basis, I have seen improvements then from those behaviors going into my mental health. My mental health has improved dramatically. I'm certainly much more resilient um, I'm capable of weathering much higher levels of anxiety and stress in general without it becoming, you know, affecting on my, my physical self. Um, I've seen improvements even, you know, in, in my skin as a result of it. Like there's so many ways in which the two sides of that coin have affected themselves. But again, I think the key thing is to sit in observation of yourself without judgment as much as possible and then you'll be able to kind of see how one influences the other. And even sometimes when you can get in your own way and start self-sabotaging by taking it too far. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if you do find yourself in a bit of a, a mental health slump where you're experiencing some negative self-talk, is there something like a fishing line that you just kind of go, all right, how do you pull yourself out of it? Do you pull yourself out of it? Because I know there are some people who allow themselves to sit in that realm of kind of like a, an emotional purgatory as a means mm -hmm. of um, allowing themselves to feel it before they move on. Or do you now have just 
uh, strategy to kind of uh, address it and then move on? So my strategy probably has got several parts to it. The first thing I try to do is to, particularly when it's on sort of the anxiety side or I'm feeling really depressed or even agitated, anything like mm. that, I'm very aware of what's happening chemically or from a neurotransmitter point of view inside my body and brain. And I recognize that probably the last thing that I need to do in that moment is to add more adrenaline on top. And if I feed the beast, if I don't address things quite quickly, then what I start to do is just pump adrenaline. And that makes me feel more wired and more anxious and it disables my immune system and it, and it really has major knock-on effects. So my first thing is to calm my body down. And so I will usually start with a breathing technique. I use the calm breathing technique, which is an inhale for four and an exhale for four. And I'll essentially do that until I can feel my heartbeat dropping down. I feel like I'm back inside my physical self a little bit more, slightly less up in my head. And at that point, I will actually sit in observation of my feelings. So what you kind of what you're talking about with the purgatory, except it's with some more distance to it because I've already calmed myself down and I will sit with it and I will try to, without criticism, actually analyze and work out where the, where this feeling or thought has come from, why it is triggering me so much and trying to then separate the emotion from the logic and actually say, right, well, is this a situation that I can actually change? Yes. Great. Here are the different things that I can do. Or is this a situation that I can't change? Okay. Well, if I can't change it, then what I have to actually address is how I'm feeling about it and what kind of things can I put in place there? And it might be that I increase, for example, uh, doing meditation or breathing or stretching, or I might get up and do a workout, or maybe it's that I'm going to sit down and actually do a gratitude practice and write down all of the things that I can think of that I'm really genuinely grateful for in that moment so that I start to rewire my brain towards positivity. Um, so I really do both at the same time. The first one is always sort of taking that survival fight or flight system out of the equation because I know I'm not going to make good judgment calls from a survival point of view, because that's not what survival is about. It's only about keeping you alive. So it's not about actually making you feel good. And so I try and get that out of the way with the breathing. And then I sit in observation of it. I am a definitely a big believer that pain, emotional, physical, mental pain is there to teach us something, that it is a great educator and that you can actually get to know it and allow it to be kind of a conduit to growth. So I think there is a lot of benefit to sitting with it and understanding it. But to sit and understand something from it really has to come from a place of being calm. Um, if you're sitting with it and you're just fretting and stewing over it, you're probably just adding fuel to the fire and making the situation worse. Exactly right. There's some great tips there and some really good insight into your personal management strategy. So thank you for sharing that with us, Fleek. Absolute pleasure. This is going to be a, probably a very tough question to answer because I don't think you can quantify this, but... If you can give us a little bit of a snapshot as to how much time, effort, dedication, consistency and sacrifice that it really take you to get you here to where you are today. Like if you could describe the amount of effort you had to put in to go from A to B, how could you describe it? Well, that is a great question to answer. Um... I don't know about you, but I was visualising like, Mount Olympus and like some very poor person like if you could describe it in any way to give some sort of context as to the amount of work it took for you how would you describe that 
for me okay in terms of in terms of a visual and even kind of the sensation of the the amount of effort that it actually took for for many many years and i'll give some more context about around this in a minute because i don't want to paint a picture and just leave you with it but it did sort of feel a lot like i was getting into the ocean on an extremely choppy huge wavy day and swimming against the current it felt like I was constantly battling another wave and another wave and feeling myself kind of get more and more fatigued as I just kept doing breaststroke and trying to move through the water and keep my breathing. That's a lot of what it felt like initially. And the reason why it felt like that, like kind of doing this giant marathon type swim was really because for a long time, it wasn't consistent. I kept picking it up and putting it down and picking it up and putting it down and and I did initially when I was having those kind of, you know, relapses and I didn't actually understand them. There was a lot of that time too where it felt like failure and I don't believe failure actually exists anymore. I think we're just still learning. But I was doing a lot of learning and I really didn't have the context around it. I hadn't done all the study yet. And so it was the lack of consistency that made it feel like I was constantly fighting against this huge set of waves that were coming at me and it wasn't really until I guess I put the science of it together and all of the the guinea pig side that I'd used on myself and the fact that I could then equate it and go but look at all these things that you have changed positively by doing all of these things that I just adopted completely um, a wellness system for my life or what I actually like to call my my full operating system is human I think that to be human is to be to recognize the importance of the physical, the mental, emotional, and to be dedicated to enhancing what you have inside of yourself, no matter what gets thrown at you. And so for me, my total operating system is human. And as soon as I really did that and just left no room for negotiation, made wellness a part of my work day, my weekends, my way of thinking, um, the way I approach other people, it really stopped feeling like as if I was battling waves and I was actually starting to move with the current instead of against it. So it did change once I made that decision to really restructure my life to be that human operating system or a wellness system. Um, so it really just meant I had to stop relegating everything about my needs to being after 5 p.m. I had to stop going, well, I'll only pick this up two or three days a week after 5 p.m. and start going, no, this is you're picking this up hundred percent. So I'll do breathing between, you know, meetings or calls. I, I did a, I did a short breathing before we got on the, this to record this podcast to ensure that my cognitive function was, you know, peaking at the right level and I was able to concentrate things like that. So I make active choices about how to enhance myself um, so that I can have the best shot at the best quality of life. That's beautiful. I had this amazing visual just playing in my head of like, as you were describing it, like going into the water and I felt my whole body tense up, like as if I was battling it with you and then, you know, coming through all that and then swimming with the current, I just saw the sun come out a little bit. <laughs> it was just, wow, that was a very beautiful description of, you know, the feelings that you had. Oh, but it was a very beautiful description of, how it could feel to go through this kind of process. So thank you very much, Flick, for being so open and sharing with us your personal experiences 
in how you manage behaviour and ultimately kept changing. And we're still changing behaviour, aren't we? Every day we're facing new obstacles and it's really great to hear that you are consistently addressing it and we're always learning and it is not a linear progression. It is undulating. We hit, you know, riptides sometimes. So we've got to stop and float and let it take us towards the current. So thank you so much again for sharing and um, sharing your time with us. Look, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you uh, again for asking me to be on and sharing your time with me and also for asking such poignant questions. I really, really love what you're you know, trying to put out into the world with this podcast. And I hope that um, my story will, you know, help some people out there in, in some small way to kind of, um, if nothing else, to embrace the human experience a little bit more and recognise that, yes, it may be bittersweet, filled with ups and downs, and no, you probably will not get to this finite feeling of utopia or perfection um, that you may have been raised to believe that that is kind of the end goal for your life, but that it is such a privilege to get to do this. And while you're here, make the most of it, learn who you are, warts and all, and just enhance what you've got while you've got it. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share that and to spend some time with you as well. Thank you for that beautiful uh, concluding tip. I'm definitely going to, uh, once we finish up our podcast, going to sit down with myself and do a little bit of breathing and setting my brain up for the next whatever job that we have to do after this. <laughs> um, amazing work. Well, thank you so much, Flick Manning, for joining us at Brain to Bar today. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about what Flick does, I will link you to her pages on the description of the podcast at Authentic. Well, you guys currently have some really nice packages that people can get on to with regards to anxiety. Can you quickly give us a little bit of a spiel about what you've got available for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that we're really committed to at Authentic is making sure that there are a lot of very easy to use services available, many of which are actually free. And we've committed to that for many of the services because so many people that really need the mindfulness aspects um, are in a position where they they either can't afford certain things or they're actually not able to leave the house. So we have a lot of online products. We actually just put together a fantastic, uh, what we call the Authentic Zen Panic Pack, which is a, a five-part series of meditations and breathing techniques to reduce panic and boost immunity. Those things are all available up on basically every podcasting and streaming service for free. And we also have free online workouts, which include everything from dance fitness and cardio to core to stretching and mantra and of course you can also do wellness coaching with us where we actually help you to find your quality of life and help you to structure it in a way that you can actually sustain so that's all available online on our website that's fantastic and i'll link everyone to the website authentic body um, on the description of the podcast so you can get all the information as well as a direct link to flick manning's Facebook page where you can keep up to date with all of her uh, keynote speaking and amazing programs and seminars that she'll be doing in the future. Thank you everyone for joining in to our first premiere episode one podcast session for Brain to Bar. We look forward to chatting again very, very soon, but for now, stay healthy, stay safe, keep that smile on your dial.